Hey, everybody. It's Thursday at 5 p.m., and that means that you are at the bar. Uh, I'm Inez Stepman with the Independent Women's Forum. And I'm Jennifer Braceras with Independent Women's Law Center. Today, for our ninth virtual happy hour conversation, we're talking about a true crime story at the intersection of law and culture, the Bill Cosby sexual assault case, and more specifically, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision to overturn Cosby's conviction on what the news has been calling a technicality. This, this case is really interesting because it did happen right at that height of the Me Too era. Um, and now we're we're finding out all kinds of, of legal details about this case that resulted um, in, in this uh, most recent overturning. Uh, but just in a few minutes, we're going to be joined by former federal prosecutor Andy McCarthy. Uh, but before we get Andy's take on the legal maneuverings, uh, maybe you can give us a bit of background on the case, Jennifer. Uh, yeah, well, I'm sort of dating myself and talking about how much Bill Cosby was a part of my childhood, but he really was a beloved figure throughout my youth. I know, Inez, you were probably still in diapers at the time, but, um, you know, when my sister and I were young, we, we loved watching Fat Albert, um, the, the cartoon that he did. Um, my parents had been fans of I Spy um, before I was born, and... Um, when I was about a senior in high school, I think that's when the Cosby show came out. Um, and you know, that's where he got, Bill Cosby got his reputation as America's dad, as they say, um, because it really was this sort of wholesome apple pie, you know, he was the sweater wearing, you know, doctor or lawyer, I forget which one of, one of the spouses was a doctor, the other one was a lawyer. Um, and they were this all-American family, and everybody just loved the show. And, um, you know, it was particularly iconic at the University of Massachusetts, where I went to college, because Bill Cosby, he got his uh, undergraduate degree from Temple University, but he received both his master's and his doctorate in education from UMass Amherst, and he was kind of a cult figure on campus, um, along with Dr. J, who had also gone to UMass. But, but Bill Cosby actually did a lot for the university. Um, he raised money for the university, and he was very much a hero there. And I don't know if this is so much a product of UMass and how much the students there loved him or just how popular the Cosby show was, but I still remember you know, my freshman year in college, we would meet downstairs in the lounge and turn on the Cosby show and we'd have you know 50 or 60 students who would gather around every week and watch this show together and i you know i guess that's not really done that much these days by kids cuz they all watch tv on their phones alone in their rooms in their caves but it was such a communal event and i never saw another television show that brought you know a community together the way that one did so it was it's actually really sad to me when these first allegations starting started emerging. So those allegations started emerging, really, and this is unfortunately, I guess, for me, um, my really own only uh, sort of pop culture understanding or awareness of Bill Cosby really conflated with these cases. Um, so in 2000, you have actress Lachelle Covington, um, who filed a police report against Bill Cosby alleging that he had put her hand under his uh, T-shirt and, and then like guided it towards his sweatpants. Um, authorities never charged or questioned him because they decided that no crime had been committed, uh, but this was in the press. Um, and then the subject of this case, in 2005, Andrea Constant, who um, did collect $3.4 million in civil damages from Cosby, which we will get to, um, reported to the police that Cosby had assaulted her a year earlier at his mansion in Pennsylvania. Um, so the, fast forward, um, a couple other women came forward during that time period, but the, the huge avalanche of allegations really only came in 2014 and 2015, which is actually relevant to the decisions that prosecutors made um, back in 2005. Um, so, but, but by 2014 or 2015, dozens of women had uh, ultimately ended up coming forward, accusing him um, of either assault or rape and, and often coupled with um, being drugged, uh, sometimes by quaaludes. Um, so the total number of accusers apparently today is something like 60 women um, with allegations dating all the way back to the 1960s. 
Yeah, and by 2015, 2016, Cosby was pretty much regarded in the public as a predator and as you know, somebody who, who had been alleged by numerous people to have, have drugged them and taken advantage of them. Um, companies and various charities that he had raised money for were already starting to cut ties with him. Uh, I believe around that time, he was leading the, the UMass Amherst Capital Campaign. Um, and I think in sometime 2014, 15, 16, the university cut ties with him because of the allegations. Um, and he, he stepped down from his role chairing the campaign. Uh, and then in around 2015, I think 2015, prosecutors finally indicted him for assaulting Andrea Constant in 2004. So Inez, will you tell us a little bit more about what exactly happened between Cosby and Constant? Um, sure, and and I'll say at the outset, um, I'm, I have been, I've written um, skeptically about the Me Too movement, but I always thought that there were kind of two ironclad scalps, deserved scalps that the Me Too movement had taken, right? Um, one being Harvey Weinstein and the other one, Bill Cosby. Um, and I was surprised when I read this case how um, you know ambiguous some of the facts of the case actually were. This is not to speak to his entire record, obviously, or any of the other 59 stories um, of women who came forward with very similar in some ways, but um, similar stories about him drugging and then um, you know sexually assaulting them. But this case, I was surprised as to how uh, sort of ambiguous the, the facts actually were. So um, Constant met Cosby professionally through Temple University, where she was um, a trustee and a celebrity, or sorry, she was managing, um, she was going out and looking for donors for the women's basketball team. He was a trustee and a celebrity booster and basically raising money for the university, uh, much like Jennifer said he did for UMass, right? Um, he became a kind of mentor to her. Um, and she had dinner at his home in 2004, multiple times, right? So she had been over at his home multiple times. Cosby had ad made some sexual advances, which she had turned down um, several times when they had been alone, including in a hotel room. Um, she interpreted these as, as sexual advances, but she believed that she had been, you know, clear enough and sort of fending them off. Um, and and apparently, you know, um, didn't didn't think that they were serious enough to to avoid his company. Um, and and then she went again to his house, which he had several times before. And this time, um, he offered her some pills. Quote: This is according to her account, um, some pills to quote take the edge off. Um, this is one of the more, to my personal, in my personal opinion, one of the more unbelievable parts of this episode is Cosby later in a civil trial said that these were Benadryl. Um, <laughs> and don't think I really believe that, but that's, that, that is, um, what, what Cosby alleged that they were Benadryl pills. Um, but he, he didn't explain what they were. She didn't ask him what kind of pills there they were, but she did take them. And, um, in her account, she became largely incapacitated and essentially came to, um, with him sexually assaulting her. Um, now she was, she was 30 at the time. He was in his sixties, obviously an important and powerful donor. Um, she didn't, uh, bring any of those claims. She tried to confront him a few times, um, over the phone, but ultimately she did bring her claim to the Philadelphia police. Um, and here is a little video, um, if I can find this, um, here's what happened after that. In 2005, after Andrea Constant filed a police report accusing Bill Cosby of drugging and sexually assaulting her, Montgomery County District Attorney Bruce Castor refused to criminally prosecute the legendary actor. Constant then filed a civil lawsuit, which was settled for more than $3 million. But by 2015, 10 years later, more than 50 women had come forward with accusations against Cosby, and the court had unsealed Cosby's damaging deposition from Constant's civil lawsuit. Armed with that new evidence, the new Montgomery County District Attorney, Kevin Steele, charged the legendary actor with drugging and sexually assaulting Constant. <laughs> case ended in a mistrial when, after six days of deliberation, the jury was unable to come to a unanimous verdict on any of the assault charges. Steele immediately announced his office would retry the case. 2018, the second trial began. As before, Cosby denied the charges and said any sexual encounters with Constan were consensual. 
The judge allowed five additional Cosby accusers to take the stand to corroborate Constan's account. Today, uh, justice was served. Um, it's been a long time coming, but uh, it arrived when a convicted felon named William H. Cosby Jr. left the courtroom in handcuffs, headed off to state prison for his crimes. And now here to talk about what happened next and what the Cosby case tells us about the future of the Me Too movement is my friend, Andy McCarthy. Thanks for joining us at the bar, Andy. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And I know you're not drinking today, but I'm enjoying a little Malbec from Argentina. Um, it's actually a wine that um, from my husband's cousin's winery down in Argentina. So that's what I'm drinking today. How about you, Inez? I have my favorite um, rosé, sparkling rosé from California. Uh, it's a light, good light drink for summer. Um, and a good light drink for some some heavy topics here. Um, exactly. Jennifer, why don't you kick it off and and get a prosecutor's perspective on the um, the fact that. There, there, there's there's a bit of a confusing story here, right? Between the, the first prosecutor um, who declined to prosecute Cosby criminally, and then um, that that same office, although not the same person, deciding yes that after a few more years they were going to prosecute him. Yes, and just just by way of background, Andy is a former federal prosecutor. Um, he is currently a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, a National Review contributing editor, and the author of Ball of collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. So Andy, we're really excited to get your perspective on this case. Um, as we talked about earlier this summer, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturned Cosby's conviction. Uh, that was a 6-1 decision, um, after which Cosby was released a free man. Tell us um, and tell our viewers why they reached that decision. Well, essentially what they found was that his due process right was denied. And, and the due process right in question here uh, was his privilege against self-incrimination. And the basis for that was a promise, which was never reduced to writing, was never uh, formalized under the, the state procedure for immunity in Pennsylvania, but one that the district attorney, I believe it was the county attorney, uh, made to Cosby, uh, at least he says he did, uh, and the Court of Appeals agreed that he did, even though the, uh, the lower courts didn't. Um, on the basis of that promise, Cosby, to his detriment, um, appeared in the civil case that uh, the, the woman from Temple had brought Constant, right? Is that um, yeah, Andrea? Her name was Constant, yeah. right? Um, and uh, you know, generally speaking, um, I've I've been through this sort of thing a number of times. The law has a lot of procedures in it to try to remove any doubt about whether promises have been made, and to clarify exactly what the promises are. But at the same time, there's a lot that goes on between. Uh, prosecutors and suspects, even between agents and informants who, you know, contend that all kinds of commitments were made about what would happen to their cases and whether they'd be prosecuted and the like. So it's really not all that unusual for people to make allegations that uh, commitments were made to them, um, even though they weren't, even though they haven't been reduced to writing. The thing that courts, I think, are most concerned about in these situations is, did the person take action to the person's detriment in reliance on the promise, whether it was reduced to writing or whether it was uh, oral? And in this instance, the likelihood is that Cosby would not have cooperated in that civil litigation where he made some very damaging admissions that ended up being used against him later and where he ended up paying a settlement. So, you know, I know a lot of people looking at this in the here and now have a real sense of outrage and injustice. I think taking the long view of this, that justice was actually done because uh, there's a very, it seems to be highly likely not only that his due process rights were violated, 
but that even if the court had reached some of the questions that came up in the trial, there would have been alternative reasons to reverse it. And in the meantime, at least the, the woman who was abused came away with a, a settlement. And it's not like we have any mystery about who Cosby is, right? I mean, his legacy is destroyed. Um, the things that he said under oath, which were very damaging to himself, still hold. It's not like that stuff all gets erased. And even though he's making this preposterous attempt now to take this, this legal, strictly legal basis, I don't want to call it a technicality because it was something that was very important. It's not, you know, when you say something's a technicality, it sounds niggling. This mm -hmm. was a core due process right. So I don't want to, I don't want to trivialize it, mm -hmm. but it is an instance where you know, justice was done. We love to say that, um, you know, we live in a society where our default premise is that we would rather see the guilty go free than see a single innocent person get convicted. Well, the wages of having that kind of system, which I think is the envy of the world, is that every now and then something like this happens because we have a very strong due process architecture um, even for people who are terrible people who are, who, who are guilty. And it looks to me like Cosby's a terrible person who's guilty. Um, but that doesn't mean justice wasn't done. And sometimes, you know, you have to achieve justice without it, without getting it in the criminal justice system. Could you, and, and um, I definitely want to get into that question of, of whether we are still a society who would rather see, you know, 99, 99 guilty men go free than a single person, punished um, unjustly or a single innocent person unjustly. And I definitely want to dig into that with regard to me too. Um, but first, could you explain what right he actually foregone? So it seems he, he testified um, in a self-incriminatory way in a civil trial, whereas if there had been a criminal, the possibility of a criminal prosecution, then he would have been able to take the fifth. Is that right? That's correct. Right. So Generally speaking, your Fifth Amendment privilege, the, the way we encounter it in, in the media and in, you know, television, dramatic presentations of, of uh, you know, the CSI shows and all that jazz, uh, where we see the Fifth Amendment come up, it comes up in the criminal context. But it applies across the board. The, the only thing that's different about the criminal context than any other legal context is that uh, a prosecutor or an agent, an investigator, if you have the person de facto in custody, the um, the first you you have an obligation to advise the person of what the Fifth Amendment privilege is and what the damaging fallout could be to to speaking when you don't have to speak. In every other context, as they the way they uh, put it in the cases, I think is that. The Fifth Amendment is not self-actuating. In other words, you have to declare it in, other, in order to take advantage of it, but it's very live. So if you have potential criminal liability and you get subpoenaed to testify in a civil proceeding or you get uh, subpoenaed to testify in, in a congressional hearing, uh, you do not have to answer questions that could tend or lead to a, a chain of uh, inferences or facts that would lead to your incrimination. So in the fifth, in the criminal context, they have to tell you that you have a fifth amendment privilege, but it, it applies in every other context. You just have to declare it. So I have a question um, based, you know, on your experience as a federal prosecutor, because I don't know that much about this. It, it seems odd to me that this wasn't reduced to writing or that this yeah. wasn't formalized. And I'm wondering in your experience, how common that is, or I mean, maybe you could just explain to people what what a non-prosecution agreement is and how it's ordinarily done. And was this a weird way to do it? And why do you think it was done that way? To start with, it was a very weird way to do it. And prosecutors' offices, you know, you can cut agents some slack when they, in on the fly in investigations, they make commitments that they shouldn't make to uh, informants or potential witnesses at times. Uh, you know, I famously had a terrorism case uh, back 100 years ago where uh, the agents promised the lead informant in the case that if he gave them information, he would never, ever have to testify. 
because they only wanted the intelligence. And then mm -hmm. it turned out that the intelligence he brought them back was that they had a massive bombing plot. So of course we needed him to testify, but the agents had told him he didn't have to testify. So that was a that was a mess, but it's the kind of thing that happens with law enforcement police people because they don't always know uh, all the rules. Whereas when you're dealing with the Justice Department or dealing with a county attorney's office, they're really supposed to comply with the provisions that are on the books. And the Justice Department has very extensive rules about this, about how you immunize people. And that's all supposed to be written down so that the full parameters of the immunity are clear. And then it gets signed off on by a court. So there's a very formal procedure about it. I think what the dynamic may be here, uh, and, th and this is important, is you know, in federal criminal justice, the prosecutors are all appointees of the president. Whereas in most state systems, and especially with, when you're dealing with district attorneys and, and county attorneys, those are elected positions and electoral politics plays into it in a way that it doesn't with, uh, with federal prosecutors because they don't have to worry about running for office. And I suspect that probably what happened in this instance is this county attorney was torn between two different things and tried to sort of thread the needle. On the one hand, he wanted Cosby. He he probably believed that they didn't have a good case against Cosby because you know she waited a year to to uh, go to the police. Um, there was no forensic support for what she alleged. Cases don't get better over time like that. They they get worse. Um, you could see when this case finally went to trial years and years later. The first time it went to trial, the jury hung, and the second time. They only managed to convict him by doing a lot of stuff that I was kind of surprised that the court permitted. So he probably thought, looking at it in 2006, that it was a very weak case. But the, the two things I think that were uh, weighing on him were, on the one hand, he wanted to see some justice done so that Cosby would cooperate with this victim's civil proceeding and at least make her whole in some way for what she had been through. But at the same time, he didn't want to sign a document that said he was giving immunity to a guy who was probably a sexual predator. So what they did, it looks like to me, if you credit that, that there was actually a promise made, and there's a lot of dispute about that factually, but let's assume for argument's sake that, that there was a clear oral promise that was made. I, I suspect it was kind of a nod and a wink thing because this lawyer, this prosecutor didn't want to have a document out there with his signature on it saying he immunized a sexual predator. So politics came into play. Politics and media, which are, you know, I guess arm in arm. Right, right. I'm interested because I, I believe the lower courts here found that there was no promise and then wasn't it sort of unusual for the Supreme Court to reverse? I mean, they said they were bound by the findings of facts made by the lower court, but then they seemed to reverse on factual grounds. And I know right. New York Times had a piece yesterday that was criticizing just that. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think what they're picking up on and what the lower courts picked up on is exactly what you and Inez were raising, which is that this wasn't written down the way it's supposed to. It didn't comply with the, the statutory requirements for how you how you give immunity. So the lower court looked at it with a skeptical eye for obvious reasons. And the testimony is certainly the way that the Times, uh, the New York Times report that we're, we're talking about from yesterday, the way that laid it out, you can see why there was a lot of skepticism about exactly what the promise was uh, and what the parameters of it was. Um, it looks like this uh, prosecutor took different positions about it at different times, including saying that he was revert, re excuse me, that he was reserving the right to revisit it at a certain point. You know, you either give somebody immunity or you don't. If you give somebody immunity, you don't get mm -hmm. to revisit that. So there's a lot of factual questions about whether the, the promise was actually extended. The Court of, or I guess it's not the Court of Appeals, it's the Supreme Court. The, the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania, 
I thought played a little cute with that in that they said, well, we're not, we're not disagreeing with the lower court because we agree with the lower court that they didn't comply with Pennsylvania law. Well, you know, the issue wasn't whether they complied with Pennsylvania law. We all know they didn't do that. The issue was, did the promise in fact get made or mm-hmm. not? And it, I, I think you're right. I think it was unusual for the Supreme Court to second guess the lower court on that, particularly after, you know, we, we should clarify here, there's an intermediate level of appeal, right? So there's the, there's the first, um, there's the trial court. And then this went up to the Court of Appeals of Pennsylvania, which upheld the convictions, and then it gets to the Supreme Court. So it's not just that they second-guessed the lower court, they second-guessed the Court of Appeals as well. Um, I want to play this clip of the lawyer um, for Cosby and and the statements that the lawyers for Cosby made after this this reversal. My reaction to the ruling is I am thrilled. Um, And... I am pleased that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court saw what we knew all along, which was that Mr. Cosby never should have been prosecuted for this for this case. He relied on representations of a prior district attorney and uh, he relied on them to his detriment. And uh, then the current district attorney not only uh, reneged on that promise, but then used his own words against him. It is it was fundamentally unfair. It was driven by politics and uh that's how we got here today. And uh, we're quite pleased that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court seems impervious to what is going on on the outside world and all of that pressure that was placed on um, the criminal justice system from uh, hashtag movements and, and, other, and, 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 and other media, not just, not just social media, but mainstream media, frankly. Um, so I want to ask you about that clip, but just to frame it, her lawyers, I mean, his lawyers have also said, um, things like that, the, the quote public panic, um, and this has had an influence on the original conviction and the decision of the second round of DAs, um, to go ahead and prosecute him criminally. Uh, this is at the height of the Me Too movement. As I said in the intro, this is one of basically two major cases where uh, there was so, some amount of broad political agreement at the time. Um, and and now we find that maybe, I mean, I, I know that it's an ideal that the courtroom is not influenced by media and politics, but uh, what role do you think that the Me Too movement um, the, the sort of public furor over these issues at the time of the prosecution, the original conviction, um, what in what role do you think they played? Do you think they they um, did influence the court? Do you think they influenced the DA's office? I mean, what was the role of Me Too in all of this? Well, you know, some of this happens, uh, some of the most important ha- stuff happens before the Harvey, Harvey Weinstein stuff blows up, right? And I point that out timeline-wise only because I think this probably, for the same reason we we discussed a few minutes earlier about the electoral politics, when you're talking about uh, state and county district attorneys, I think it affected the prosecutor more than it did the trial process. And the reason I say that is because in the first trial, the jury hung. So it's not like you know they were overwhelmed by publicity. Um, it was a hung jury because it was a very weak case. And I got I get the sense, and I remember at the time getting the sense reading the reports that the jury was probably torn because they believed the woman, they believed the victim, they believed that Cosby had done this, but the case, the proof of it was so weak uh, that they couldn't unanimously convict him. So what ends up happening in round two? In round two, they use against Cosby the statements that he made in the civil proceeding years before, which are statements he would never have made uh, if he decided to take the fifth and not participate in that. So those statements wouldn't have been available. And then the other thing they did, and I, I, I remain Sorry, perplexed. Just interrupt you for a second. Yeah, of course. It's not just number one, they promised they wouldn't prosecute him and they broke that agreement and came back and did so. It's also that they used those incriminating statements, which he allegedly believed were protected, right? So it's, is it both of those things? 
or is it yeah, just I, the incriminating statements? I, yeah, I think it's both of those things. But you know, it occurred to me when when, um, when Inez was uh, sort of teeing this up, I had a thought which I had never had before, um, which was maybe the fair way to do this if you were going to say we're not going to honor this promise or we're not going to recognize the promise because it wasn't written down, it didn't comply with the statute. There's a lot of question about whether it really happened or not. One of the ways to resolve that would have been to say, we're gonna allow him to be prosecuted, but you can't use any of the statements right. that he made in the civil proceeding. They not only used the statements against him, they put in front of the jury the fact that he paid a, was it 3.4 or $3.8 million settlement, which was, which was obviously damning fact. And the other interesting thing is, even that they weren't sure was going to be enough because they did something that I must tell you, having tried a, a bunch of criminal cases, you would never, ever get away with this where I was a prosecutor in, in the Southern District of New York, which is this area of the law that um, that the rules of evidence and the courts are very ambivalent about called similar act evidence. Um in the in the Cosby case, just so I can be concrete about what we're talking about here, the case was about the complaint f from uh, the the victim from Temple that we've been who we've been talking about. But in order to shore up her testimony, they allowed five other women to who had similar experience with Cosby to come in, even though none of those sexual assaults was charged. Now, and that did not happen in the first. Trying of the case. My understanding is it did not happen in the in the first trial. They may have let some of that stuff in, but not five different people. So, as I say, the, the rules are very ambivalent about this. You're not allowed to convict somebody because he's a bad guy. You know, you can't convict a guy for bank robbery number ten because he can committed, you know, nine other bank robberies. Because the way our system works, we want to be sure that there was proof beyond a reasonable doubt of all the elements of the crime that's actually charged in the four corners of the case. And we don't want juries to convict people because they get fired up by the fact that somebody's done you know, other terrible things in his life. At the same time, the rules of evidence permit similar act evidence to come in for certain purposes, one of which is like um, to prove something was kind of a signature crime, so you're like, not exactly, um, you're not there. Killer, is that how it would come up with a serial killer? Like if they had a certain MO of the way they. Right. Yeah. Because then the rationalization is, and you can, you can see this is like one of these things I always say, you know, it's easy to explain this in a, in a, uh, in a law school exam, but to try to get a jury to understand, look, you can't convict him because he has a propensity to do bad things. But if you find that he did seven other things and he did them the same way, you can find that that's common scheme or common plan, and that's admissible. Uh, you know, I, I just think it's it's a very tough line to draw. And the way that, um, unfortunately, there's no good ex you know there's no good bright line explanation of what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. It's more like a feel thing. So, in my experience trying cases, when you got similar act evidence in, uh, it would be there'd be two things about it. One is the court always had this sort of feeling like, how much of it should I really let in? Um, and the other thing was, if you had overwhelming evidence, the court wouldn't let you put it in, even if it was admissible and even if it was proper under the rule, because you're in such a gray area of whether you're prejudicing somebody with propensity evidence versus uh, you know, proving common plan or scheme or the other things that the rule of evidence lets you prove. But I, I can tell you, um, if you had a case where a guy was convicted, uh, was accused, let's say, of two counts of sexual assault, and they had very common aspects to them, and then you wanted, you had, you found out about a third incident, you might very where it was similar, you might very well convince a court that that's an appropriate proof of common scheme. And it's not like you're letting the similar act evidence overwhelm the evidence of the crimes that are actually charged in the indictment. But what you would never get away with would be you have one crime that you've charged in the indictment 
And in order to try to convince the jury, you're going to hammer them over the head with five other uncharged instances of mm -hmm. the same behavior. I just, I don't think a, a judge would normally let you get away with that. And I'm kind of surprised with respect to the Supreme Court here, if the ruling about whether this promise happened or not was going to be very controversial, I'm surprised that they didn't go the extra mile and say, even if we were conceivably wrong about that, we think the similar act evidence here was over the top. And we think it was wrong to use Cosby's um, testimony in the civil case and, and especially the settlement in the civil case against him, because at least then you would say, okay, well, there's, there's uh, alternative reasons here why mm -hmm. this was the right decision. And the case was very weak. Yes. But they didn't do that. Nope. Especially given that the facts of this case, to the extent that I've read media accounts of some of the other accusations, they are much more explicit. Um, in this case, the, the woman voluntarily, for example, took the pills, um, not knowing what they were, not asking what they were. Um, th there, there were apparently in her testimony, there were discrepancies. The story had changed multiple over time as well. Um, in the multiple times that she had sat down, um, and been interviewed about it within the context of, of the court, I'm not talking here about like media interviews or whatever. So this case itself, again, like I said, in the beginning, this case itself, even the facts of it seemed not necessarily exculpatory in any way, or certainly not, you know, it certainly didn't show Cosby to be like a, a, a good guy. Um, but we're much more ambiguous than some of the other cases that I assume they brought in later. Um, and it seems like that would be exactly an instance of what you were talking about, where you bring in cases that were never charged, never, um, you know, brought to court, but the the alleged facts of which are much clearer than the actual case that is in front of the jury. Yeah, you know that it, it's a great point, and um, it, you know, you I think our experience. I and I hate to say this, but the older I get, the more I see this happen. Um, you find a you know you you find out a, a situation where you're called on to evaluate something that happened a long time ago. And because of the current tenor or the or the the media environment you're in, you look back at that thing that happened a dozen years ago and you say, man, that sounds crazy to me. Why would a guy, why would a prosecutor make a decision like that? Cosby's such a bad guy. Why let him walk like that? And then when you sort of, you know, roll up your sleeves and get into the facts of the case, what you find out is in 2006, this prosecutor, he may not be a great guy and his testimony about this promise certainly looks shady to me, but you have to try to put yourself in the shoes that he was in at the mm -hmm. time, right? And there was no me too then. There weren't 60 women who would come forward against Cosby. There was this one case that was in front of him. And the more we look at it, the more weak it looks. So in the in that period of time when you didn't know all this other stuff was going to happen in the future, I don't think it's crazy to look at what he did and say, you know, look, he took something that if he had tried to bring this case, Cosby probably would have gotten acquitted or it wouldn't have gotten any better than a hung jury, which, you know, for a prosecutor, a hung jury in a lot of these cases might as well be an acquittal because you know, you really, especially in a case like this where you don't have a lot of forensic supporting evidence, that case is not going to get better time two or time three. What's going to happen is the defense is going to have seen your case. And to the extent they were surprised by anything the first time, they'll be prepared the next time. Right. And in the meantime, your case is not getting any better. You're not getting physical evidence. You're not getting any uh, any kind of corroboration that would you know, bolstered the problem with the victims. Except in this case, but, it did because they brought in the other witnesses. Right, but a lot of those weren't available in two thousand and six. Right. You know, if they had been, the, probably the world would have been totally different. Maybe the prosecutor would have made a different decision. But the thing is, it, it when we first heard this story, you look back at two thousand six and you say, "This Montgomery County prosecutor, what on earth was he thinking?" And then when you try to put yourself in his shoes, you know, I think he I think he had a very weak case. 
He thought if he brought it, he'd lose, or at best he'd get a hung jury. And he figured out a way to get Cosby under circumstances where Cosby didn't have to do this, where he had a live Fifth Amendment privilege to cooperate with the civil case, uh, make damaging admissions so that we have no, there's no mystery about who Cosby is, right? And right. pay a settlement that at least gave this woman some justice. It's not right. the same as having him convicted, um, but it but it was the best that you could do under the circumstances. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was the right decision. The part I question is not reducing it to writing and having it be formal, but I, I think you're absolutely right because without the other witnesses of prior bad acts, without the testimony where he admits to, you know, giving women drugs, um, and given the, the political climate, you know, the cultural climate we were in in 2006, and given the fact that she had waited a year to report it, that she kept in contact with them, all those other things, I think- and, and, the thing, and, the thing that you, and the thing that you mentioned at the beginning, which, you know, is like the 800 pound gorilla in the room, right? Which is, he's Bill Cosby. He's Bill Cosby. You know, exactly. In 2006, I that was a big would have lost. Right. It doesn't mean that Bill Cosby isn't guilty or that I don't think he should have been punished. But I think the reality is that that, that prosecutor knew he wouldn't win that case. And I don't I don't think he was wrong not to bring it. I do. I do wonder why he you know, well, you kind of shed light on it, that there were some politics involved, why he didn't reduce that agreement to writing. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I want to ask you whether or not you think that this decision, in the long run, will be used to subvert due process. And I ask that because I've already heard some analysts out there saying, you know, this is exactly why we shouldn't have due process. It lets rapists go free. And I saw um, in a post about the Bill Cosby case, somebody quoted Anita Hill who in another context, not the Bill Cosby context, had, had condemned what she called the deception of a pretext of fairness. And I think there's, you know, we know that there's this movement out there. We see it in the Title IX context and universities. We know that there's this movement to say, you know, due process lets too many bad guys go free. We shouldn't have it. And do you think that will lend credence to those to those views? Well, you know, I, I guess every little bit counts, right? I wouldn't think that this particular case, it's so historically um, eccentric that you wouldn't think it would have all that much application. Mm. But I'm sensitive to the, to, um, to, to the background you gave to that question because what we're seeing across the board, you know, due process is, is supposed to assist the search for truth. And lay the groundwork for a proceeding that has integrity so that you get to the bottom of what happened, even if it turns out that what happened is what you, is not what you hoped would happen. You know, mm -hmm. it's supposed to clarify things. And in every other context that you're talking about, whether it's, uh, you know, the Title IX context or education or a, a lot of what's going on in, in education and the schools, um, what we're now instructing people is that there are things that that are more important than what's true and that there's a construction mm -hmm. of justice that's kind of like a morality play rather than getting uh, to the truth which is that right um, and also that that there are things more important than what's fair that justice is more important than fairness yeah when inez was talking before you were right to uh, you know i i summarized i think i said that um you know we have our conviction is that we want the guilty to go free and uh, rather than the innocent get convicted. And you mentioned that the 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 accurate quote there is that it's like we'd rather see ninety nine people or whatever the the uh, the number is. And I thought when you were saying that, as long as it's the right ninety nine, um, because that's kind of where we're at today. And um, you know, the search for the truth is not the ideal that it used to be. So, you know, to the extent that anything, that can be is out there that can be used to weave into a political narrative that there's a right outcome because of social justice versus a right outcome because something is true we're going to go with social justice anything that can be weaved into that narrative i think is damaging 
So this seems to happen particularly with cases that involve sexual assault, right? Because they so often, there is so often there isn't forensic evidence, especially years later. So often there aren't witnesses. It, it, they do come down to essentially credibility of, of a witnesses and a he said, she said kind of situation. Um, there, there is this real push to say that in this context, as opposed to all the other contexts, um, that that due process is too... Uh, too protective, right? As Jennifer said, it it, it lets rapists walk free, um, and and even the law itself has bent a little bit to that idea, right? Because we have different rules of evidence for sexual assault cases in particular instances, right? For example, bringing in the sexual history of a woman involved, right? Um, right. And we have different rules of evidence with regard to just this specific type of of case. Um, do you think that the outside for and and the Me Too movement and and um, the, the as Jennifer said the Title IX um, debate on campuses I think that that spilled over for most people into the Kavanaugh hearings and then before that into the Clarence Thomas hearings the idea that we ought in these particular cases um, this particular type of case we ought to drop the standard that in fact mere accusation um, should be the or or for example more likely than not or or um some kind of lower standard than that beyond a reasonable doubt criminal conviction that people seem to be comfortable with in other in crimes they're just no longer comfortable with in the context of sexual crimes do you think that that how do you think that pressure will change the legal system over time or is there enough within for example most prosecutors office is there enough stomach to you know, turn away cases that might be um, for, for which they might be excoriated uh, in in the media. I mean, how how, how as a former prosecutor and as, as somebody who has so many friends um, who still are prosecutors, do you think that our justice system still has the stomach to stand up to public opinion on this? Well, this is one of my uh, my favorite topics because I end up uh, I, I feel like I end up writing this in about a million different ways because of the, the various iterations in which it comes up. But I think that our premise should be that the law can't fix what's wrong with the culture. And the legal system has flaws. It's a human system. Every human system uh, has them. But the due process system and the protections that we afford to people who are accused of crimes, even people who aren't accused of crimes, the privacy protections that we have. Uh, the minute we start to compromise those because of political reasons, and particularly, you know, we're already in a very, I think, dangerous situation for fundamental fairness in the sense that we have uh, two tiers of justice where, you know, I, I I don't have a brief to carry for the January 6th rioters, right? But if you're a January 6th rioter, the FBI and the Justice Department will scorch the earth and and that's across all 50 states. Uh, use Facebook, use whatever technology they have to find you and bring you to Washington to prosecute you. But if you're involved in other kinds of ideologic, ideologically driven rioting following the, the George Floyd killing, for example. In New York, where I grew up, they just threw out scores of cases against people who were uh, involved in rioting uh, in New York City. And what they did was they threw up their hands and they said, you know, gee, a lot of them were wearing masks. I don't think we can identify them. Well, you know, if you can identify the people at the Capitol, you can identify, you use the same techniques, right? Mm. They, they've chosen not to identify them. And the thing is, we already have, I think, people bubbling angry over the fact that um, your political affiliations and your ideological preferences, unfortunately, are the kinds of things that are supposed to be out of the consideration of the criminal justice system are now being factored in. So that's a big problem in and of itself. If you're going to add to that problem by degrading due process protections to cure things about the society that aren't caused by the law, they're cultural problems, then that's a slippery slope uh, to destroying the legal system that you have to have 
if you're going to have a self-determining society that has a, any kind of economic flourishing and social cohesion. So I, on every single front, and I try to do this with my eyes open and recognition of the fact that the criminal justice system and the justice system generally is a human system. It has problems. We need to address the problems when we see them. But I would not for a second degrade any of our protections to address things that the legal system hasn't caused, which is cultural problems. I think on on that note, um, I, I think it's such an important one um, just across the board, whether you're talking about, as you said, the worry about political prosecution, um, the the worry of justice being applied unevenly, you know, um, the the benefits of of having a, a justice system that respects the rule of law and, and uh, impartial application of justice seem sometimes to be very abstract, but they, they are so incredibly important. And you can tell how a, a society and how lives change when when that does degrade in, in other countries, for example. But um, Andy, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us here uh, at the bar. Um, it was a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Next time I'll, I'll buy the next round and I'll make sure I have something other than um, Poland Spring. Although I will say I did listen to President Biden for an hour before I came on with you, which is why I'm all dressed up in fox clothes. So I did feel disoriented when we started, if that helps. <laughs> well, that, that probably means you need a drink, a stiff one. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thanks so, thank so much. Again. Yes, thanks again, thank Andy. Um, thanks for coming on. And At The Bar is a production of the Independent Women's Forum and soon will be available on all the podcast apps, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and others as well as, of course, on Facebook and IWF.org. We hope you'll join us again in two weeks where Inez and I will be talking about legal efforts to force women to register for the draft. See you then.